well. Welcome to Mission Driven You. So delighted that you joined in this today. I always say good morning, good afternoon, good evening, because I've got people who listen to this podcast from all over the world. And I'm so delighted you joined in today. And just to kind of give you a little bit of a sneak preview over the next several episodes, for the next three to four episodes, I'm going to be diving into some bigger issues. Oftentimes, we focus here on really practical issues. And this episode today is going to have is going to end up with some really practical things on what to do if you find yourself stuck in this kind of remote versus in-person problem, right? But I, I want to talk today and over the next couple of weeks about also about some bigger issues, because I think it's important that we understand where we are historically. So we have a sense of, of why these things matter so much. So we're going to talk today about the remote versus in-person problem, and I'm going to give you some practical suggestions at the end. But I do want to spend time talking also about the about the bigger sort of historical moment we find ourselves in. So if you're ready, let's go ahead and get started. So first of all, let's just realize that we are in the middle of a time when we couldn't have imagined the questions we're asking ourselves, right? The, the pandemic heightened what was already happening, which was this immense disconnection most of us feel from the work that we do, from the corporate jobs that we engage in. We just feel cut off. And like I said, not that long ago, we couldn't have imagined the questions that we're asking. But now it's almost impossible. Look into the front page of any newspaper in the world. Could be the New York Times, could be the Washington Post, the LA Times, the London Times. It doesn't matter. Any major newspaper, and you're going to see people asking the same questions, or all the business publications, Harvard Business Review, and so on, Sloan Review, they're all asking the same question, which is how do we solve this remote versus in-person problem? It's a problem that, like I said, we couldn't have imagined it existing not that long ago. So I want to talk today about sort of five assumptions, five key things that are driving us and, and why this question is so relevant now. And hopefully what we're going to talk about is a way of thinking about value, because that's really like, what's a job? What's work? It's a way of creating value in the world. So what I want to do today is think about how we move beyond this remote versus in-person challenge and possibly create a new model for how we create economic value in the world. Hopefully that's not too lofty. Like I said, we're going to we're going to end with some practical implications and some practical steps you can take. But I want to spend some time thinking about this bigger question about how we create value in the world. So let me start by saying that there are two different questions we could ask. And as I often say in my corporate practice and frankly in my individual coaching practice as well, the questions you ask determine the answers that are even able to be created. The questions determine the possible set of answers. And so there are two possible questions we could be asking. The first question could be, how do we fix this broken system that drives questions like remote versus in-person? And so we are in a system of work. We're in a system of corporate life that has existed for hundreds of years. And we could be asking ourselves, how do we fix this broken system? How do we fix the problem? And that's, if, if you look at the way most corporate leaders 
are approaching this issue, they're approaching it that way. They're saying, how do we fix this broken system? If you look at Jamie Dimon or any of them, you know, Meta, Google, they're all trying to figure out how do we fix this broken system? And, and they're all asking the same question. Should we bring people back into an office where everybody works for the corporation and sits near each other in a cubicle? Should we find some way of facilitating remote work? And that's one way we could ask the question, how do we fix the broken system? But I think there's a second question which will give us better answers. And here's that question, which is how do we create a new system of economic value in the world? How do we create a new system that actually creates value and does good for the world and also allows people to live in a way that is financially resilient? So let me start with some assumptions that I've got and some things that I think we need to be focused on in, in answering this question. First of all, I think you've probably picked this up already, but one of my assumptions is that the remote versus in-person question is just fundamentally the wrong question, right? It's the wrong question to the problem that we're observing. It's based on an assumption that we inherited from the industrial era. So think about the modern workforce. The modern workforce is a product of the industrial era. Now, I don't mean to bore you, I think it's, but I think this is important to understand the angst so many of us feel when we feel disconnected from our work. And the contemporary workforce came about because of the industrialization of the world. And so you think about it over the last, you know, Starting about 200 years ago, people began to move from rural areas to urban areas, and they began to work in factory settings. And the, the factory model was always specialization. It was you do a particular thing in the, in the line, and you create a product or you insert something into the product line, the product creation line, and that's your value. So maybe, for example, go back you know, 100 years or more, you were the person who stuffed the meat into the sausage casings, or you worked at the Ford Motor Factory, and you were the person who put brakes in the Model T at a particular time. Now, fast forward to the 2020s, and we have very much still a version of that, even with very high-tech, high-skilled labor. So the People who are creating software code or doing network architecture or even creating broad marketing schemas and all that, it's still very similar. We think about, we think about the corporation the way we thought about the factory, and we think about work as the creation of that particular thing in the line of value production the way we thought about it in an old factory. Now, like I said, the COVID, COVID pandemic, it really heightened what was already occurring, which is people just, too many people don't give a shit about their jobs because they feel completely disconnected from the product of their labor. So my first assumption, the first thing I want us to sort of question is this, whether the remote versus in-person is the right question. Because here's what I'm going to suggest. The fundamental problem is not where people work. That's the question being asked by corporate leaders who are trying to solve this remote versus in-person quandary. The fundamental problem is not where people work. The problems are what type of work they do, for whom they work, 
whether the value is derived by the corporation and their shareholders or the value is derived by the corp- by the value creator, by the person actually producing and creating something, and what value then they derive from that creation. So fundamental assumption number one, remote versus in-person, it's, it's just the wrong question. Now, a lot of times when I talk about this topic, people are people say, oh, you're trying to address the work-life balance issue. And I want to suggest to you that I'm not. (laughs) This is not a work-life balance issue because the the whole idea of work-life balance is it's a problem of story. And so we often talk about this. Those of us that are social scientists, sociologists like myself, anthropologists, even economists, often you hear about how we're held together by our stories. And the whole idea of work-life balance is just a problem of the story we have been telling ourselves. And all you have to do is look at, go to your Netflix queue or your Apple TV queue, and you'll see the stories, the modern legends we're telling about this imbalance. Could be the movie Office Space, which was really popular when I was coming up in the IT industry. Severance is the most recent one. Severance is a movie on or is a TV show series on Apple TV where Adam Scott literally has a chip installed in his brain. So when he's at work, he doesn't remember his home life. And when he's home, he doesn't remember his work life. Right. This is this is the stories we're telling ourselves that there is work, which is awful. And so we need to we need to find a way not to think about it when we are in life, quote unquote, home, whatever we call it. So much of our advertising, whether it's from beer to beer to rafting to exotic vacations, is about getting away from work and getting into life. And I'm going to sort of put in a a perspective that I don't often put in in this podcast, which is from my earlier training as an academic, which is as a sociologist of religion. And here's what I want to suggest, that we live in a culture that still believes that hard work is something that we got from the fall, The, the biblical story of Adam and Eve, how they sinned and they got booted out of the Garden of Eden and they had to do work now. They had to struggle and toil. They were alienated from nature. They were forever condemned to moral angst about our care and survival. And so we have these stories that told us that we have to work hard because we are fallen people, fallen people rather. Or that's at least what our stories told us. And the, the culture scape, which is just this combination of all of the messages we're receiving from mass media culture, from social media, from advertising. The culturescape encourages us to see work as something we have to do rather than something we get to do. We talk about sticking it to the man, condemned to the job, right? These are all expressions of our belief that work is from some sense of being cursed as humans something that we've done wrong. Because we did wrong, we have to work, right? So number two in our fundamental assumptions, I want to suggest that we really need a fundamental reconception of work itself. Now, here's my third assumption. The revolution is not going to be VC funded. 
the revolution is not going to be funded by venture capitalists. Now, I say this with all due deference to my dear friends who are venture capitalists, and I've, I know a number of them, and to the even to the venture capitalists that are working on ventures that I'm helping to foster through my coaching. But our model of venture capital is based on a continuation of the way we've been doing things. Our model of venture capital is based on a perpetuation of the same thing we've been doing. I mean, sure, maybe we've gotten a little more innovative in our venture in our venture capitalization models. We think now about lean startups, but it still follows the same basic model, which is that an entrepreneur has an idea. They receive venture capitalization, which turns that into some sort of minimum viable product. We productize that, we corporatize that, and we put a corporation around it. And then that company is either sold or, or made available on a public, public exchanges. And then the venture capital gets an exit out of that. Hopefully, if it was a good investment, a 10x or a 20x or a, or a multiple, many multiples x. And the problem is that we've allowed that model the VC to MVP to productization to corporatization to exit, we've allowed that model to dominate our economic world. And so we think about value as that. I would suggest because we have simply failed to imagine anything different. But the revolution is not going to be VC funded. It's not going to be funded by those who have continued to fund the way things are. Right. What will replace it? Well, number three, I think we need to create new economic value creation models that are driven by human efforts, not the financial capital of the existing system. Systems perpetuate the same. Systems perpetuate themselves. If we want to rethink work beyond this limited idea of remote versus in person, we're going to need to create a new system, and that is going to, not going to be funded by the existing funding streams for the existing system. Now, number four, and this is where it's going to start to get a little more practical. Hopefully, you're, you've hung with me now on some of the more philosophical parts. But number four in my fundamental assumptions is that creating value is not the same thing as starting a company. So I mentioned before that we are bound together by our stories and who are the people that we lionize? Who are the people that we idolize? They are the people who have mostly who have started companies. They are the Mark Zuckerbergs or the Elon Musks or the Richard Bransons. And some of them are great and some of them maybe not so good for the long-term good of the, of the planet. But we have thought about creating value within the corporate framework. Here's the problem with that. The corporation is a very modern invention, at least depending on how you think about modern. So the corporation, as we know it, has existed since about the 16th century till now. And we assume that that's how we create value in the world because that's what we've been doing. We assume that a company, a corporation, is the way we create value in the world. And we assume that because we just haven't imagined anything bigger than that. We even call our efforts, like we think about our efforts to create social good. What do we call them? We call them nonprofit companies. But 
we are in a time of great change. One author called the time we are living in the 500-year delta. And it's true. If you look at his, history, we tend to reinvent, reinvent ourselves culturally, socially, about every five to 600 years. And we are in the midst of that time right now. So we're going to continue to follow this model that creating value means I have to start a company. We're going to continue doing that until somebody creates a new model. And that's exactly what I'm advocating here is a new model for value creation. How do we do that? Well, a number of us have been involved in Web3. And you know, if you think about it, uh, Web1 was just sort of basic text-based. Web2 began to give us interaction. And now with Web3 tools, not just generative AI, but tools like blockchain, we now have the idea of actually storing value outside of the traditional corporate container. What would that look like? Well, think about it. I don't write software code anymore, but I used to write software code. And the idea that we need to only write code within a corporate container for a particular product that relates to the end product a company sells, that's no longer true since we can store the value of that code in the blockchain. The same is true with network architecture. The same is true with just all of the value that we create, all of the what we traditionally think of as white collar jobs, all the white collar value that we create in the corporation. We now have the capacity to store that and make it accessible across a variety of platforms. It no longer has to own, be owned by the company that keeps the value of that code or that architecture or that marketing idea or that language, that copy, whatever that is. It no longer has to live exclusively within the corporate container. So we can now begin to think of a value creation model that isn't stuck in the last 500 years. If you think about it, the way we create companies, we have not reinvented that since we've started creating companies in about the 1500s. Web3 actually gives us the tools to begin to develop a value creation model that isn't stuck in the last era, but is part of the world that is coming to be. Now, our fifth assumption, and this is um, also where I think there's some really practical applications, is that engineering the solution is very different from designing a solution. And so if you're familiar with this idea, the difference between engineering and design. So engineering is a way of thinking about better solutions to known problems. So think about brake pads that are inserted on the Tesla. It was really big in the 90s and 2000s to think about Six Sigma. Six Sigma is just, there's only one deviance every 1 million instances. That's how you think about Six Sigma. So if I were to apply Six Sigma successfully to the creation of brake pads that went in a Tesla, for example, then only one out of every million would fail. That's an engineering problem. And it's an, it's an engineering problem, which is to say, how do, I, how do I engineer a solution to a known problem? My known problem there is I want my brakes to always work. Well, the pandemic, that just, <laughs> just blew that all the way. No one could have engineered a solution to a global pandemic on the scale of the pandemic, uh, uh, to, to a global pandemic like what we saw on scale. And if you think about it, the, many of the companies that we 
are creating and we're developing, the ones we describe as disruptive are really just engineering solutions. So I can't tell you how many conferences I've been in over the last, I don't know, eight, you know, six to eight years where they've talked about Uber as this great disruptor. Well, here's the reality. Most humans will live and die on the face of this planet having never ridden in either an Uber or a taxi cab or a Lyft for that matter, or any other challenger that's getting ready to come up. It was an engineering solution. It was just, it was shitty taking a cab in a city. <laughs> and so Uber figured that out and they figured out how to create an engineering solution to a problem. But we really have yet to conceive of new ways of economic activity outside of the way we've traditionally thought about companies, because doing so requires courage. It's going to require imagination. It's going to actually be disruptive. Here's the thing. If, if the solution that you're thinking of doesn't upend everything about your life or about civilization, it's not actually disruptive. It's probably an engineering solution to a known problem. And frankly, I think we worry too much about how we monetize solutions. And that tends to limit or constrict our understanding of what's possible and what problems we could actually solve. But in some of the groups I spend time with, we think about some of the really significant problems, significant income inequality, resource allocation issues. You know, why, why do we still have hunger in the world? For example, we grow more than enough food to feed every human in the world. And yet there are some people who will go to bed hungry tonight and too many people, particularly in the developed world, who will go to bed with too much nutrition. That's not an engineering problem. It's a design problem. And we need a disruptive approach to creating the future. Now, what kinds of shifts will this require? So first of all, I think we're going to have to stop talking about work as we have known it. And I think we're going to have to shift from work to what I call value creation. What is the actual value of our work? Right now, we think of it as contained within a product offered by a company. And so if you think about the end product, let's say it's a, an app. You bought the app and behind that was maybe somebody who did UX UI or somebody who did software development. And they created a certain part of the value chain. And then you bought the product at the end. And that has worked successfully for us. But I think we're nearing the end of that time. And I think we're going to have to begin to shift from work to what I call value creation. We're going to have to, secondly, we're going to have to have a shift from companies to, I don't know what, probably something that looks more like creative collector, creator collectors or guilds. So imagine if all of the engineer, engineering architects were able to come together and form almost a guild of engineering and make the value from what they're creating available through the blockchain or other, other W3 means to actually create value within a variety of companies and within a variety of different products. I think number three, we're going to shift from corporate capitalism to what I call motivated individual value creation. Now that sounds like it's more radical than I want it to. But so many of us have realized that corporations have begun 
to be of little value anymore. We've gotten a lot of value out of them. And I think we still need corporations that do public goods. I want the corporation that's going to guarantee my roads are paved and my, you know, the public public infrastructures are, are well cared for. I want them to run well. But corporations have run amok. We see massive inequalities in income. And we could we could argue against that for moral reasons, but I'm going to suggest that it's just shitty ways of living in the world. When we have this significant resource inequality, it's a bad way of ensuring that we have a future as a civilization, as a society. So I think if we can shift from corporate capitalism to what I call motivated individual value creation, creation where individuals are still being gaining from the value that they're creating, but it's not the value is not going to a shareholder. And that's the, that's the fourth shift, really moving from shareholder to value creator, because the value is no longer being gained by somebody whose only contribution was the, was the purchase of a share of stock, right? I think if we can move from shareholder value to creator value, then we can begin to live into the future. And fifth, on the same vein, I think we're going to have to move from shareholder value to social value. And we've begun to see some of that. If you didn't listen to my um, interview with Nathan, Nathan Stuck on B Corps, which was, I guess, two or three months ago, please go back and listen to that. I think we're starting to see a shift from shareholder value to social value, from the ultimate good, not just being the ROI on the price of, of a purchase of, of a unit of stock, but did we actually become better ancestors? Did we actually leave the world, world a better place for having been here? I think we're going to shift number six from corporate product ownership to what I call block value creation. So the idea of the company, of the corporation, I think is out is beginning to have outlived its usefulness. And I think we're going to see the value in new ways of storing the value in, in through technology in W3. And then finally, we're going to see the move from government, from corporate government sanctioned entities, which are all corporations are. I'm a corp, I own a corporation. I own two corporations, actually. It's just something that the government told me I could have because I applied, I put, put in the right license paperwork, I paid the right fees. The problem is that it, that doesn't tell me anything about how we are bound together by our social contracts with each other, by the promises that we make to each other. Corporations are governed by the laws of governments, which are good as a starting point, but they don't really get us to the significant question of how we are bound together by, by a sense of social contract with each other. So those are the shifts that I think it's going to require. I think it's going to affect several things. There are six things I think it's, this change is going to affect. It's going to change the relationship of the worker to their work from working for the man to creating value. I think it's going to change workers' relationship with companies, what we call companies today. It's going to change our conception of economic value to something that is post-industrial that we've yet to conceive of. I think it's going to change the way we think of labor laws Another, in addition to the remote versus in-person, one thing that's often on the front page of our newspapers and of our business journals is this question of labor laws. And we had these 
ways of dealing with labor before, particularly with unions, that is still may have some value, some utility, but we really haven't rethought the concept of labor laws for the modern era. I think it's going to affect working for the hour, working by the hour rather, versus creating value. And then finally, it is going to create how it is going to change how we create value in the marketplace. So increasingly, I believe rather than value coming from a corporation, it's going to come from the value creator somewhere in the blockchain. All right. So I want to kind of wrap this up by giving you some practical things you can do. Let's say you've been listening to this for the last 30 minutes. You're like, yeah, Will, I get it. I agree with you. All that corporations suck. The way we create value is outdated. But I don't know what to do, man. Like, what am I supposed to do with this? Well, here are five steps that I'm going to suggest you can take to begin to live into your future value. So first of all, step one is just understand what your value is. What is it you're actually creating? One of the reasons so many of us feel like we are cogs in a machine is because we are cogs in a machine, (laughs) because we have gotten stuck And we haven't really understood what is the value I'm creating? How is that shaping the future of this planet? So take some time to journal today and say, what is my value? What do I create? What did I create in the world that's going to make me a better ancestor? It's going to change the future of this planet because I was here and I created that thing. And then second, I would encourage you to begin to test your value outside of the corporate setting. Now. A lot of the people who listen to my podcast are already entrepreneurs or gig workers, or they're they're sort of of already venturing out there. But ask yourself, if corporations didn't exist, what value could you add in the world? How could you actually add value in the world that wasn't bound by a traditional or a typical corporate box? Third, find collaborators. And if you're not sure how to find collaborators, sign up for my group coaching class because you will find them in my in my group coaching. Find collaborator, collaborators who are interested in asking the same kind of questions as you. And then fourth, if you if you do find yourself in the corporate box, that's okay. Ask how you can collaborate within that box. How can you begin to collaborate on the future value even of that corporation within that box? And then fifth, Invite others into the conversation. You know, we we often think of as startups, again, because of the way we've thought of venture capitalization, we think of startups as ways of creating new companies. But if you invited others into this conversation, what would it look like to create a startup around value creation? What would it look like to say, what do I want to be true in the world? And how do I create that? So I appreciate you hanging with me today. Like I said, the next this for the next several episodes, we're going to go a little deeper. Hopefully this isn't too deep. I'll, I'll look to your feedback. If you're like, dude, this is too much information, just let me know that. But I'm so glad you uh, joined in today for this conversation. Like I said, if you are interested in finding collaborators, one of the good ways to do that is through my group coaching class, which you can sign up for on my website. In case you don't know what that is, it's willsampson.com. 
And you can certainly find me on Instagram and LinkedIn as well. So thanks for your time today. And I'm so glad you were with me today on A Mission Driven You.